Well, greetings, everybody. Welcome once again to the Rec Poker Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Fredland. And tonight we're going to be doing things a little bit differently here for episode 147. Uh, we had planned to interview MSPT champion John Sun. Uh, he was unable to make it. And so we're going to mix it up a little bit. Uh, back to uh, just myself, no panel. But I've got a few things I want to talk about, including my MSPT coverage this past weekend, uh, just real quick. But then what we're going to do is actually share with you some snippets from some of the content that we have created over the last couple of weeks. Uh, we have just introduced rec.poker. That's the new website. You can go there for all the information about who we are. And from there, you can access our members-only area. And you can access this for free for 30 days. Go in there, sign up, 30 days free. If you like what you see, if you want to be part of the community, if you want to engage, go back and forth, be part of the podcast recordings, be part of our group discussions, be part of the book study, all of that stuff, uh, you can join there for $9.99 a month. Uh, not my idea. They forced me to do that. It's 10 bucks a month. All right, people. Uh, so you can join uh, out there. All that information is there. But now rec.poker, very easy to remember go there for all of your stuff. Uh, before we go further, I do want to make sure that I thank Running Aces, Racetrack, and Casino, uh, and Hotel coming soon in December. Uh, but they are our sponsor. They've been with us since the beginning of the podcast back in 2017. And the players of the week at Running Aces this past week, Brian Soja, 42 points, Clint Lighthizer, 31, Tim Ross, 27, and a tie for fourth, so they both get points. They both get tournament lammers. Brian Morey and Troy Withers. Kind of a who's who of running aces there, so congrats to you guys. Uh, I was going to give an update on the NFL Survivor Pool. I know we lost like 18 people this past weekend, some because of upsets, some because uh, they didn't get the pick in. So I think we're down to like 50 or 60 people now uh, in the Survivor Pool, so make sure you get your pick in this week. Uh, there's going to be prizes for the top three. Uh, a couple of other things coming up to make sure that you are aware of if you want to participate with us. Uh, this Wednesday, September 18th, we're going to be doing a marathon recording session. Uh, we are going to be breaking down one of the prior MSPT final tables, and we're going to take it from the beginning of the final table all the way through. We're going to be recording for nearly four hours. And so we're inviting you to come in for part or all of that as much as you want to engage with. We're going to record the whole time and then we're going to edit it down into different chunks and we'll distribute those chunks kind of over time. Uh, but you are welcome to join us uh, for that. So right now that is available to all of our members. They have the link on that membership site where they can just click in and join the Zoom meeting. If you are not a member but you want to check that out, either go into the membership site, uh, sign up for a free membership, or just get a hold of me. In the month of September, we'll make that available to non-members uh, for a few more weeks. So just reach out to me if you want the link, and I will make that happen for you. And then the other thing I want you to be aware of is next Monday, September 23rd, uh, we're going to be doing an interview with Jonathan Little. Now, his schedule uh, did not allow us to do it at our regular time of 6.30 p.m. Central Monday, Monday nights. Uh, so we're going to interview him from 4 to about 4.30 on Monday afternoon. So I know that's in the middle of the workday for a lot of folks, but if you want to participate in that and have a chance to actually speak with Jonathan Little, uh, reach out to me. We'll make that happen for you. And I suspect our panel will be pretty small uh, on a weekday. So there's a good chance we can just bring you on as a panelist and you can actually just have a conversation with Jonathan. So reach out to me if you want to do that. And just generally stay plugged in through Facebook, Twitter, 
the email list. Um, that's probably your best way to stay uh, in tune if you're not a community member. Uh, if you're already part of the community, you'll get updated on all of those things. Um, so that's that. Uh, one thing I wanted to chat about is just, uh, I came off this last weekend doing my third reporting uh, gig with the MSPT, the Mid-States Poker Tour. Uh, phenomenal time, great, great people. This is at Canterbury Park in Minneapolis, uh, just south of Minneapolis in Shakopee. Uh, but I've, this is the third one, so I've gone to Cleveland, I did Evansville, Indiana, and now I did uh, Canterbury Park in Shakopee. Had a great time, and actually, uh, I wasn't expecting it, but they asked me to come into the booth and do the the commentary of the final table along with Ben Valder. So I wasn't really prepared for that, but I had a good time. Took a little while to find the rhythm um, and tried to balance uh, getting into strategy and just providing some entertainment. Uh, but it was it was really fun and a phenomenal uh, final table. A great heads up battle between Matt Kirby. And Michael Escoval, Michael Escoval ends up winning it uh, for $98,000. Kirby takes home $60,000. Uh, Kirby was trying to become the first four-time, I think the first, uh, but a four-time MSPT champion uh, fell just short finishing in second place. But a really a good time there. Learned a lot. You know, when you cover poker uh, for 40 hours, 50 hours over four days, and you watch some of the best players in the state or even in the country – uh, play, you learn a lot. And I really learned a lot. Uh, and so uh, I love that. It's kind of like being a dealer where you kind of watch what everybody's doing and, and try to learn from people. Uh, so it was phenomenal. I took away a few things that I'm sure I will share with you over time. But with that, uh, what I want to do now is just share a few snippets uh, from some of the things that we have recorded recently. So I think uh, what we'll do is I will share with you uh, first something from a hand history that we did. Um, with uh, Chris Jones was read, was leading this piece. So I'll just put the snippets back to back, but the first one is part of this hand history we did with Chris Jones, um, talking quite a bit about suited aces uh, in the blinds. And then uh, we'll kind of go sequentially. Then I will share a little bit from this uh, hand that Jake Mason put together. He submitted a recording of a hand, so we'll share a little bit of that. Then I will share a little bit from this book study that we just started, Andrew Brokus, uh, Playing Optimal Poker is the name of the book. And so we're meeting uh, every, uh, what are we meeting? Every other Wednesday, second and fourth Wednesday, we're meeting uh, to talk about this book study. So I'll share a little bit of that. And then uh, we'll share a little bit of the latest hand history uh gathering that we had, and this one was led by Taylor Moss. So in order, uh, hand history from Chris Jones, a uh, hand by Jake, a book study of Andrew Brokus, and then the hand history uh, from Taylor Moss. So enjoy those. Well, going back to what Carter said, so let's say, uh, you know, his range really should have been sixes or better um, to do the his call pre-flop, then I don't think it would make any sense for Mulder to shove with sixes though. I mean, if he, if he truly had sixes, I don't think that play makes any sense. So given that his range starts off as sixes or better, what range should he realistically be shoving here? And to my mind, it, you really only want to be shoving like jacks are better because then you're giving some room for to be called if you're doing it for value, mm -hmm. some room to be called by hands that are worse than that 
set of hands. So, you know, you could get Filatov calling with like his ace five right now or nines or tens or eights because those are the types of hands that Filatov is representing at this point. Um, so I think although Mulder has his range presents as sixes or better, I think a large portion of that range is not shoving on the river. Super good point. Super, super good point. So I'm going to put myself in like Philatov shoes here. If I have sixes through Queens, really, I'm playing the hand like he did. I'm betting. I'm check calling. I'm check calling if it's not a jam, right? I'm check calling like a one third to like 30 to 60% on the river. I'll call with sixes through Queens. Um, so yeah, that, I mean, that's a really, really good point that his value Mulder's value shove range is narrow, really, really narrow because it's only his value shove range is only, I can beat your pocket pair Philatov. That's the only part of it that's value in the rest is bluffs or a King. Yep. Right. Which goes back to Steve's point that maybe if, if you understand the players and whatever, then maybe it does become a call um, for value with your pocket fives or not pocket fives, but your pair of fives. It would have been a pretty if he if he calls that I, that I think this this hand would be more famous. That would have been a pretty pretty sick call. Yeah, absolutely. Well, <laughs> but still, if you think you know, we just talked about it. I mean, what is he bluffing with? Or yeah. what is he? What is he value betting with? I should say, he his bluffs to value bets are so much. There's so many more bluffs to value bets when you go all in at this moment in time. Absolutely, you can't go all in for even a pot size bet because he has 123 that he goes in with. The pot was 178 at the time, so he's not even making it a pot size bet. He's just he's just threatening Villatop with his tournament life, and. And what value, to John's point, was so good, what, how many value hands do you have that you are going to put it all in to try to get value from? I mean, there's just there's just not that many there. He's got way more bluffs than he has value hands. Yeah, he really does. It's a great point. Another great point from David. Yeah, for sure. That, that, that One of the announcers, I feel like we should be speaking in British accents, too. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, that, that one of the announcers called it out. The fact that the ace of clubs that he has the ace of clubs does take away some of those bluffs. If he's been, you know, if his opponent's been in there because of a ace x flush draw, and now he turns it into a bluff, he no longer has an ace x flush draw. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they kind of pointed out that that's the reason they thought he folded. Yeah, because um, it takes away so many of Mulder's bluffs. Yeah. Not realizing he can have Queen Knight of Hearts. <laughs> right, exactly. His <laughs> sixes and better range really included the Queen Knight of Hearts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> really, really good point by David. Yep, for that, sure. That, that skews his range towards more value heavy. That's true. He looks down and says, okay, I can't call off A6. Like, he has A6. Or, <laughs> Phil Tom doesn't beat much. He has A7 A of clubs here. I can call off with my five, but he looks down at the ace of clubs and says, okay, there's conservatively 15 to 20% of that guy's bluff range deleted because I have it blocked. So that does, I think, make it more 
value heavy, even though I think to John and Rob's point, it is still skewed towards plus. Hey guys, this is Jake with Rec Poker, and today we're going to be talking about how to play a suited ace from the blind. And in this particular case, I am in the small blind. This is this takes place during the Running Aces $150 double stack tournament. This is early on in the tournament. Blinds are 200, 400. You start with 20,000 in chips, and as you can see, I've lost a couple pods, and so I'm already down to 14,000. The big blind in the hand has about starting stack, and the middle position player has 35,000. I'm new to the table, so I'm not sure how this person acquired their chips, but as it currently stands. Um, we don't have a whole lot of information on really any of the players at the table. So the hand starts off with middle position, raising it up to 1100, so a hair under 3x, and you know, pretty standard at this point. I look down, I have ace 10 of clubs in the small blind. I don't really see any other option but calling. I mean, you could make, make a case for 3-betting, but I'd like to do that with more information with my against my opponents but since I'm new to the table and I just like to play it out of position here as a call and probably play a small pot a lot of the times here at least like I said at this stage in the tournament without having much information on our opponents um, the big blind also ends up completing so now the pot is 3300 and we are heading to the flop the flop rolls out 7-8-9 rainbow. All things considered, this is a pretty decent flop. I don't have the backdoor club draw, but I do have the open-head straight draw. I have an overcard. Um, and now if we're talking openers' ranges, I mean, sure, it's possible this person has a 9 in their hand, maybe some sort of mid-pocket pair that flopped the set, jack-10, maybe 5-6 suited, but... Generally speaking, there aren't any face cards on this flop, and I'd like to think that at least my open-end straight draw is live. Maybe my ace is live, too, um, so as it currently stands. I feel pretty good with where I'm at, but I also don't want to play a gigantic pot if I don't have to, especially being out of position in the small blind. Uh, when a player has no preference between two or more of his strategic options, he is indifferent between them. So he's talking about um, equilibrium and the, the preference for strategic options and, uh, and contrasting that with um, the game theory view. You guys remember that part? Yeah, I think that goes back to like the, you could use my rock, paper, scissors example. If you choose, if, if my goal is to choose 33% even, um, 33% of the time I throw each one of them, then you're indifferent to what your strategy is. If you choose rock all the time, it's the same expected value as if you choose paper every single time. Or if you, it doesn't matter how you move those percentages because I've got the equilibrium strategy on my side which makes me indifferent to what you choose. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. 
No, that that only happens if uh, you don't choose to exploit the person who is using rock more than 33% of the time. So if you know that your opponent is going to be used, you know, choosing rock, you know, 50% of the time, then you need to, to, to exploit that. You need to change to paper 50% of the time. Now you're exploiting the rock thing and you're, you're, you're getting a bit, a bigger expected value and you're not in equilibrium anymore. Right. Well, exactly. But, but let's say we're going to, we've decided that we're going to, play rock, paper, scissors a thousand times for a dollar for each trial. And um, what I might decide to do there is I'll start for the first hundred trials of that. I'm going to do pure GTO until I figure out what it is, where you're deviating from GTO so I can figure out how to exploit you. Right. And then once I do that, then I'll go ahead and switch my play to be an exploitive play, keeping in mind that I'll, I'd still want to track to see what you're doing because if you change your strategy, now I need to change mine. I am no longer indifferent to what you choose. As Correct. soon as I decide to exploit you, I have to pay attention to what you're doing because I have to change my strategy if you change yours. Absolutely. Because you could have a third player that watches you move your from 30% to 50%, and now he's going to exploit you based on what he's seen. So here's the the intellectual challenge that I I faced with here. So how in this uh, conversation have we now not moved to an exploitative strategy? How are we still playing GTO in that case? Uh we're not. We're not. We're using GTO as a basis to exploit our opponent. If we're ah. strictly GTO, we would be strictly 33% on each opportunity, right? That means that you can't be exploited, but you're not exploiting the other player. The minute you see that the other player is doing a strategy that can be exploited, then you try to go ahead and exploit that for a more positive EV. Yeah, like in the rock, paper, scissors thing, if we're doing a third, like if John's saying, if we're doing all three of them completely randomized, our opponent's never going to win more than 33% against us in the long run, ever. Even if they're doing 50% rock. You know, if we keep doing our random thing, we're both going to win 33% of the time. But if they're doing 50% rock and they're not adjusting, we start doing 50% paper. Now we're going to have a much higher ROI than they are. So, um, you know, it doesn't matter what they do. They can do whatever they want. They can do 100% rock. They could do a third distribution, however they want to do it. If we're doing a third randomized, they will never beat us more than 33% of the time. So it's a very, you can't beat me sort of thing. But if we start noticing tendencies in their game, then we say, ah, okay, I'm going to start sneaking in a little bit of paper here, a little bit of extra paper. And if they don't pick up on this, I'm just going to start taking some margins. Then I'm going to do a little bit more. Like if, if they let me steal their blinds too often, I'm going to start doing it more. If they never push back, if they never adjust to doing less rock, I'm just going to keep keep exploiting them until, like Stacy says, now, okay, now the small blind picks up on the fact that we're raising pretty often from the button more than we should be. The third guy comes in and starts saying, oh, okay, he's doing too much rock. You're doing too much paper. I'm going to come in with 75% scissors, and I'm going to screw you both up. You know, I mean, whatever that is, that's kind of the – that's the game. And that's how Nash Equilibrium actually – um, starts, uh, I guess, from the whole thing. Any any of this sort of game 
theory sort of stuff, Nash equilibrium begins like, okay, this guy's only playing these hands. And so I'm going to adjust to this. Oh, now they adjust to that. They adjust to that. Eventually that's how Nash equilibriums were even formed is that over the long run, if everybody starts adjusting perfectly to everybody, there gets this stopping point where, okay, that is this, um, you know, this mythical hypothetical, perfect poker, assuming it's so then assuming everybody's playing perfect poker, you can't be beat. But that's when then we kind of that's the grounding. That's the kind of the, the infrastructure. And then that's where you come on board and say, okay, too much rock. I'm going to move away a little bit from exploitative. And then you move tables and everybody's doing the third distribution. And you go back into your, your GTO. Yeah, Brian had a great example on the chat where he talked about uh, in the low buy-in tournaments we play, people don't bluff enough on the river. So our exploit of that is to fold more which is absolutely perfect. Because if you think about it, maybe the equilibrium would be 60% value, 30% bluff. But what's happening is you're getting more like 80% value bets and 20% bluffs. So now to exploit that, you fold more than you do call because they're going to have value more often than they should. And that was something Brian put in a chat, which is a great example of what you just said, Steve. So we'll we'll roll with this for now, um, and with that, I will uh, answer Carter's questions of before of what did what did Taylor do here. Um, so a lot of things to be considered, and I've touched on a lot of them so far. I think stack size and stage of the tournament is immensely important here. Um, if we had even just a fewer big blinds, call it twenty two big blinds, uh, I think a limp is definitely the play and it kind of doesn't become a question because then you're at a really weird spot where you have weird stack sizes if you raise um and puts you in really weird spots to call off versus a shove where you might be getting the right price but you're almost definitely not um plus we're in the middle stages of the tournament a lot of people are going to start tightening up here at least in my opinion um we do have this guy who's a perpetual limper which i would like to cultivate the image of don't you dare limp on me uh likewise i feel like i'm never getting three bet from either of these players unless it's premiums in which case i have a very easy uh open fold where if i can you know put it in the raise and get or put in the bet get raised um i know i'm behind and i can easily fold and i can do that with a relatively small sizing i said before my typical approach is kind of like a four plus one but i think it's definitely a three plus one situation where i can make it four big blinds here and accomplish a lot of what i'm trying to get at and make this player kind of in a weird spot because he does have 22 big blinds so my game plan here is going to be to raise to four big blinds um hope to get two folds here and then um apply some pressure to this player if he calls and we have a flop that is not king high, queen high, or potentially jack high. I know Samsky was saying those things, but I think there's way too many kings and queens in his range uh, that are going to kind of crush us that I don't really want to interfere with. But if we get some of the lower flops, they're not really in that great of a spot and we 
kind of crush a lot of his range. And then also I agree with what Steve said. If it does come ace high, I'm likely going to be slowing down and underrepresenting my hand. Uh, one for protection from bigger aces, because there is a decent chance they have a bigger ace than us. Uh, but then also likely it kind of underrepresents our hand, giving us more potential for equity later. All right. Well, hopefully that gave you a flavor of some of the things that we're doing here at Rec Poker Nation. We're still uh, working out the details of everything, but we have a lot of content scheduled. And the content that we're doing is really co-created. So we create uh, Zoom meetings, webinars, uh, video conferencing, whatever you want to call that. And if you are a member of Rec Poker Nation, you can come onto those. You can interact with us. You can answer polls. You can do chat Q&A, all kinds of things. Uh, sometimes you'll be able to actually chat with uh, some of the people that we're interviewing. So you can contribute to creating the content together. We record it, and then we edit it, and then we put it back as content for all of the community to share. So it's really a co-created content process. So hopefully that gives you a flavor. Uh, we'd love to have you become a member or go out there and just try it for 30 days. Uh, we've got topics. You can go out there and give updates on tournaments that you're playing. You can break down hands with other people. So there's a lot of chatter that goes on uh, inside of the group, as well as having access to the content uh, and being able to participate in all of the interviews uh, and all of those things. So please uh, go check it out. And if you don't mind, uh, share it with other people. Let other people know about this deal. Um, it, we're really excited about it. And if you are also somebody that wants to uh, help spread the word about this, but could use a little financial incentive, uh, let me know. Uh, what we can do is actually create a link specially for you uh, that you can use to try to recruit members and get paid a little bit uh, if they do sign up. Uh, so if that's something of interest to you, or if you have uh, access to somebody who has some influence uh, and they want to maybe uh, do some sort of an affiliate program like that, uh, let me know. We will set that up. Uh, with that, just a reminder of a few things. Uh, we're recording uh, our commentary of the MSPT final table this Wednesday, September 18th, starting at 6.30. Uh, actually, starting at 6.45. 6.45, we're going to start. Uh, Jonathan Little, we're going to interview him next Monday, September 23rd at 4 o'clock, if you want to be part of that deal. Uh, the NFL Survivor Pool, if you're still in, don't forget to make your pick out there. And then just, just plug in. Uh, Twitter, Facebook, the email, whatever that looks like for you. So with that... Uh, one final thank you to Running Aces Racetrack and Casino for your ongoing sponsorship. And I'll sign off. Uh, until next week. Otherwise, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, whatever it is, reach out to me, Steve at RecPokerTraining.com or through Twitter, Facebook, whatever. Reach out. Have a great week. Peace.